good to be with you guys tonight. Uh, I was just thinking, I was singing that song. Uh, sometimes you sing a song over and over, you don't realize how great it is. And it was just a good reminder that Christ works objective. Uh, and it's not just our feelings towards him. It's not our sorrow that we give to him, but what Christ has done and completed and finished that gives us assurance and security. And I don't know, it's kind of hit me in a different way tonight. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, it's good to be with you. Like I said, tonight we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 24. So if you'll go ahead and flip there. Uh, and before we go ahead and read the text, I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word tonight. So if you'll pray with me. Father, your word is holy and perfect, God, and we are not. Our eyes are often blinded by our sin, by our unbelief, by our doubts, by our circumstances, by our anxieties, and beyond all those things, our weakness, God, our inability with language, our inability to grasp concepts that are too great and marvelous for us. And so we ask for your help to see your word clearly today and to apply it diligently to our lives. Father, I pray that we would walk away tonight and want to abolish every idol, every false god that we have in our lives and worship and serve you, the only true God. Help us do that tonight. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So again, like I did the last time I preached, if you were here, I just want to orient us to the text. Uh, I probably won't do this every time, but I think it's helpful to know where we're at in the book of Joshua. And so specifically in this chapter, we're picking up in verse 14, but the prior 13 uh, verses are laying down the groundwork for what we're going to call a contract or a covenant. And so there's some kind of simple, basic elements to covenants or contracts. And the first 13 verses are laying out the first two elements, uh, you know, around about here. And they're that we're going to lay out who the parties are, God and the Israelites, and we're going to talk about what their historical relationship to one another is. Verses 14 through 28 are going to kind of shift and go to the rules of the contract and go to the consequences of the contract. And so that's kind of a basic, really simple outline. But as we read these next verses, I just want you to have that framework. We're kind of looking at the rules and the consequences for breaking the rules. And so if you flip there, Joshua 24, uh, beginning in verse 14, says this, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us, us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us on all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore also we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, 
but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up underneath the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was a kid, uh, this might surprise some of you, I had my left ear pierced. And so some of you are probably like, I don't know you super well, but it doesn't seem like something you would do. But you need to understand a little bit of the story. I'm not the only person in this sanctuary uh, to love Michael Jordan as a kid. Me and Neil aren't alone on that. And when I was a kid, I remember sitting at the doctor's office, some appointment for me or my grandparents or whoever, and I look over and at the magazine shelf, which is pretty common at this point, Michael Jordan is on the cover. And it's him in a Ferrari. He's smoking a cigar. He's got his left ear pierced with a diamond earring, and he's sitting in front of the uh, Bulls stadium. And I thought to myself, that's the guy that I want to be like. And so there's this sort of hero worship with Michael Jordan, if you remember, I'm sure many of you do, that kind of drove me to want to be like Michael Jordan. I wanted to be identified by the things that Michael Jordan was identified by. So I got the earring. I always wanted my grandma to shave my head lower and lower so I look more like Michael Jordan. And beyond all that, I was like super committed to playing basketball. And so I wanted to, I kind of worship Michael Jordan. I wanted to be identified by Michael Jordan. And then I went and played basketball. And so my life was characterized by some of the things that Michael Jordan's life was characterized by. And that's kind of the, uh, the flow that we're going to see in this passage. It starts with worship and it ends in service or the life of the people, what they do. And so when we look at this passage, we're going to recognize then air and service is really going to be traced back to an air in worship. And so whatever we worship will drive what we serve and what we do. And we're a lot more like Joshua's audience than we're probably aware of. I'm sure many of you in your life have like an ideal or God's standard or a command that you really want to live up to, and you're really committed to it. And then tomorrow comes along and you're back in the same place saying, I'll never do it again, God. And then an hour later, you're back there again. We're going to recognize some of ourselves in these, this audience that Joshua is addressing, having the standards set before them, agreeing with the standards to some degree, but not being able to live up to the standards. And as Neil's been going through Judges, you see the ultimate outcome is really a, an abandonment of God entirely in some instances that really is starting the seeds of which are in this passage. But what Joshua is going to show us today is that we serve what we worship. And so if we want to serve the living and true God, we must worship the living and true God by putting away our idols. And the way we're going to kind of look at this text today is in four divisions. So we're going to look at break it up in four uh, aspects. The first is just the nature and centrality of worship. The second is the importance of identity, who we are. The third 
<clears throat> is the danger of idols. And the fourth is the power of a promise. And so those are going to be the four divisions that we'll look at to understand this heir in service being really an aspect of an heir in worship. And so the first aspect here, we are commanded to serve the Lord. Therefore, we must serve the Lord and worship him in sincerity. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me for just a minute. Joshua says in verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. We see that the, the primary overarching rule in the contract is to fear God and, and sincerely serve him. That's kind of the main stipulation that we're looking at in the contract. If you read up to this point in Josh, what we've seen is that the relationship and the promise has been fulfilled to the Israelites. They've gotten the land. God has made them their people. But now we're going to lay out some rules to establish and maintain, grow, and strengthen that relationship. It's a lot like when you get married. When you put the ring on your spouse's finger, that's not the end to the rules. It's really the beginning to a lot of the rules to maintain, to grow, to strengthen the relationship. And so as we see this contract kind of being renewed, it's really that maintenance, the rules, how are we going to maintain a relationship with God and walk faithfully with him in the land that we're getting at. And the main stipulation that Joshua gives them is that if they're going to serve the Lord faithfully, then they need to put away the false gods. Much like your marriage, I'm sure some of you have less rules in your marriage, some of you have more, but all of us probably have one common one, so you can't have any other spouses. No extra wives for you, no extra husbands for you. And worship for God is just like that. It's exclusive. It's not both and, it's either or. Because God knows that if you worship anything else next to him, you're not really worshiping him at all. Whatever you put your allegiance to, your faith in, let your love go to, that's the thing that sits on the center of your heart. That's the thing that will control your life. And so God says, worship, it's not a both-and thing. It's an either-or thing. But we might be asking ourselves, if we're familiar with this book at all, is it seems kind of like superfluous for Joshua to say this at all. Things have been going well, right? The land's been conquered. We've been driving out the Canaanites. We've divided up the, the pieces of land of the different tribes. Why do we really need to say this? But it seems like things probably aren't going as well as it seemed to this point. It seems like, as some commentators note, that maybe the author of this book has been holding back some information for, information for some dramatic effect at the end, but you get some hints at it through the book. The primary one is the difference, I think, between Achan and Rahab. Achan, if you remember, was the guy that was hiding some idols kind of in his bedroom, and then they found out about it, and then what happens to him? He gets stoned. It's a bad day for Achan. But Rahab, on the other hand, a non-Israelite, serves the Lord faithfully and is included in the covenant. What we see here is a distinction between Israel and true Israel. There's some people that are descendants of Abraham, so they're Israelites. And there's some people that have faith in the God of Israel, and they get engrafted into the covenant. But not all Israel is really true Israel. There's a distinction that's been being made, and it comes over the issue of worship. Achan was worshiping false gods. Rahab worshiped the true and the living God. And that was the biggest difference. And the same truth is true for us today. 
Not everybody in the visible church is a part of the true church, the universal church. Not everyone that shows up in church on a Sunday is really in Christ. And it begs us to ask the question to ourselves before we proceed is, am I worshiping the true God, the living God? Or do I have a false imagination of what he's like? Do I really worship some other God that's diverting my attention and my love? But beyond that, the other kind of caveat here is, am I worshiping the one God sincerely? It wouldn't be enough for me to do the right things in my marriage. I need to have the right motivation, right? If I buy flowers for Jess every Friday for 10 years, and one day I tell her, you know, never really want to do this, but I just want to make sure I was doing things right. She'd probably look at me and say, I wish she had never bought them in the first place. And Josh just pointed out, don't worship the, the Lord half-heartedly. Worship him sincerely. And we need to ask ourselves that same question. Do I worship the Lord sincerely or am I just going through the motions? So to serve rightly, we recognize that we must worship rightly. The right hearts, the right object of our worship, and so on. So worship is at the center, but as with me, with, as when I was a kid worshiping Michael Jordan, we saw that the next step was to be identified by Michael Jordan. I wanted to look like him. I wanted to be named by him. I wanted people to think of, of Michael Jordan when they saw me. I probably failed at that pursuit for obvious reasons, um, not the least of which is my basketball skill. And so, and so what we see here is if we're going to serve the Lord, which we are commanded to do by Joshua, we must reorient our identity to have it be rooted in the true God. And so an issue in the book of Joshua is just answering that question that I've already kind of raised. Who is true Israel? What does Israel do that's different than the Canaanites? What distinguishes the worship of the Israelites from the Canaanites? What makes them a distinct people group? And Joshua is sort of answering that question and trying to keep the groups somewhat separate. And so identity is a really important issue, and we see how it plays out here. But I think another reason that the issue of identity is uh, always, it's a perennial question, it's a really important question here, is as the late preacher, pastor John Stott said, our conduct towards others, we could say our, our works, our service, is driven by our opinion of ourselves. And so how I think about myself is going to change what I do in the world, how I treat others, how I serve, how I work. And so getting the issue of identity right is necessary to serving in the right way. And so Joshua hints at the issue of identity in these next verses. And how do we know that? Well, we learn a few things about how identity is formed in these passages. If you look at verse 17, we see that identity is rooted in history. And we know this intuitively. Your past has a bearing on who you are today. Your family name is carried with you. Your relationships in the past are carried with you. They define you. And what the Israelites are saying in verse 17 and 18 is that these are the things God did for us, and this is how we responded. We have a relationship with, the, with God, with the Lord. That's the person that defines us. And so we see one of the markers for identity is our history, and they're hinting at their history here. The second is that identity is rooted in verbal allegiance, is maybe how I'd put it. And that just means they're saying God, not generally God, but he's our God. And we want to be identified as in connection and relationship with him. And so they call God our God. They're saying we want the God of the universe, we want to be named by him. 
We want people to think about him when they see us. That's kind of what they're hinting at by calling God our God, not a distant deity. He's their God, the God of the Israelites, and they're ascribing to that to some degree. So what we're seeing is that identities are really formed at the altar. What we worship determines who we are. One author, Jamie Smith, says, you are what you love. And so there's this vital connection between worship and identity and service, and they're intertwined, they're interconnected, and Joshua's beginning to allude to that. And we kind of know that that's the case, right? We're named, we're identified by the things we love. A lot of you, a lot of people that go to this church probably think of me as Jess's husband, or maybe even more importantly, Bennett's dad. Uh, Probably not just Chase on his own, and they're probably rarely referenced to as, oh, aren't you Chase's wife? Uh, It's more the other way around. But our closest relationships, the people we love, tend to define and identify us. And that's a really important thing to see, is that what we love identifies us. Another kind of silly example is if you look at people's like social media names and handles. So talking to Jess about this, she follows some woman named uh, Non-Toxic Mama. And what I think that means is that this woman loves making sure her kids are healthy and she loves being a mom. And so what's her Instagram handle say? Non-Toxic Mama. It shows the things she loves, the things she worships. We want to be identified by those things. And so the problem becomes that Josh has already been hitting at is if we love the wrong things, the wrong things are going to identify us. If we worship the wrong God, our identity will be all off. And if our identity is off, then our service will be all wrong. We'll begin doing the wrong things. So who is true Israel is a crucial question. And the central answer is what God do you worship? That will be the thing that identifies you, that distinguishes you the most and distinguishes Israel the most. So to serve rightly, we must think of ourselves rightly. That's what we learn here. So to serve God, we must worship him. We must reorient our identities to be rooted in him. But the question becomes, what if we don't? What if Israel doesn't? What if they don't define themselves by that relationship? What if they have something else they're worshiping? Then what happens? What will be the consequence of that? And that's what Joshua begins to get at here in verses 19 and 20, is that although we're commanded to serve the Lord, he hints at a fundamental truth. We can't. We're not able to do it. It's too great of a task. We've got some specific problems that are hindering us from actually being able to live out that call. And so the response for us is to confess the wrong gods that we've worshipped and to re-identify ourselves by the true God. Destroy the identities we've constructed apart from him and reorient our identities in him. So look with me for a minute at verses 19 and 20. It says, Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So why would they be commanded to do something they can't do? Is it unfair? Is it unjust for God to do that? Well, I think Josh was actually hinting at two issues going on in these verses that kind of indict the Israelites and probably indict us in the process. The first is that they are all too ready and willing to be like, oh, worshiping God, serving him? Yeah, yeah, we're good with that. Like, we've already been doing it. It's not that hard. And they're kind of saying like, keep doing what we've already been doing awesome at. 
we'll definitely we're, we'll sign the contract. Where's the dotted line? Is what it indicts them of is they have a low view of God. They think it's not that big of a deal. It's not that hard to worship God. And Josh was saying it's way more difficult than you could ever imagine. But the second, and we'll talk about this more in a second here, is they have a casual view of worship. As Joshua indicts them in of in a few verses that we've already read, is that they kind of are comfortable with this idea of syncretism. We can have a few gods on the side, and we can have the true God. We can do both things at the same time. But what they don't realize is that God is a jealous God, and he won't give his worship to anyone else. So Joshua contrasts these wrong views of God with some true statements about God. He said, you can't do it. Why? God is holy. He's ethically pure. There's no sin in him. There's no sin around him. Sin can't be by him. God is holy, and no sinner can come near him. God is jealous, meaning he's not going to give his worship to any other. There's no syncretism to be done here. You can't bring your idols into church and expect God to be okay with it. And that's what they're going to be indicted of here. Thirdly, God's committed to his own character. There's a shocking statement. It says God's not going to forgive their sin. He's not going to forgive their iniquity. He's not just going to sweep over the wrongs that they've done because you'd have to deny his own character to do it. God is utterly committed to himself. He's utterly committed to his character. And to say, I'm not going to deal with your sin, I'm not, there's not going to be consequences for your sin, would, for God, would be for God to say, I'm no longer just. And he's not going to deny his own character. He's wildly committed to it. But lastly, and almost more, most heartbreakingly, is God is good and gracious. Joshua says, God's been good to you, but he will do you harm if you forsake him. What we see here is when you watch a movie and there's two characters, two primary characters, and they've been together through thick and thin, and we come to the climactic moment or so we think of the movie, and one of the characters turns their back on the good guy, leaves him abandoned to fight on his own or whatever, and it's such a heartbreaking moment because the one character has been defending the other person, serving the other person. So when you turn your back after someone's been good to you, it's all that much more painful. The consequences are all the more great. But even more than these things, the truth really comes out about the fairness question and indicts them as much as us. And it's this. Look at verse 23. Just reread it for a minute with me. Joshua says, if you're going to serve God, you're going to worship him, then put away the foreign gods that are present among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. So why aren't they able to serve God? This is no generic statement of our total depravity, our our inability just to keep God's commands. He's saying, the thing I said would hinder your worship and service of God in the first verse, in verse 14, it's the very thing you're doing. You have idols in the church service. They're in the chapel. You store them in your purse. You put them in your pockets. They're here. It's such a shocking statement that a lot of commentators think it's more like hyperbole. Josh was just alluding to something here, but it's not a real situation. But I think other commentators are right when they say, no, 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 it's happening. They're here. They're in your pockets. They're in their minds. And the more shocking thing about it is these are the same people that stoned Achan. When he had the idols, they were like, yeah, let's get rid of that guy. He's been uh, messing up our plans here. And so they know about it. They know it's a huge deal. And yet they don't really see the core issue. They don't see that this is a big, big deal. And so what are these idols? There are two things. They're mental 
and they're physical. And so we can't just limit it to one or the other. They're both working together simultaneously. And what I mean by that is this. They're not just something these people have dreamed up, such as for us, to put this in modern uh, parlance, it's not like they're just sitting around. They have the idol of being rich and wealthy. And they're just sitting around thinking, all the time daydreaming. What if I had a couple more dollars? What if I had a bigger house, a nicer car, a bigger bank account? And eventually those things have warped their mind. It is that, and that's a really big deal. But the second side of that is it's like they're on Instagram every day, scrolling through their feed, and they follow a bunch of really rich people, and they're just looking at it. And every time they get on the internet, they look at Zillow and turn up the, pr high, the price of the house and think, what if I live there? And they drive through the nice neighborhood, and they go through the expensive car lots. It's both things at the same time. And the reality is that combination is super powerful. Neuroscience has done a lot of studies on the effect of our imagination alone in changing the way we think and the things we find pleasure in. If we just closed our eyes and began imagining stuff, your brain would be recircuited to love those things, to find pleasure in those things. But if you combine that with a physical object, it's really dangerous and it's really powerful to combine what you think about and what you do. And the Israelites, they brought little statuettes in their purses to church and they've been thinking about God wrong and they've been dreaming about the wrong things same time together. The issue is they're guilty of a subtle and casual syncretism. And you can know that because when Joshua says, get away of the idols, what do they do? They don't get rid of it. It doesn't say like, and then they threw them down and crushed them and turned them to dust and they melted them in fire. They're kind of like, oh, the idol. We're good to worship the true God, Joshua. Don't worry about us. It, like some commentators note that just odd, oddity of the text. Most other places you see idols exposed, it's a huge deal. And so when it's not a big deal here, you're getting just a, a small seed of something. They realize they don't think it's that big of a deal. They think they can hold God and idols together. It's casual. Idolatry is more like a leech than it is a predator. It doesn't mind sucking on good things, worship, Christian stuff. It doesn't mind just kind of being a back burner to those things because it tries to get you to believe the lie that they can coexist at the same time. It's not a predator saying it competes with your worship. It says, I'm going to use your worship to get what I want. And that's why it's so much more dangerous. The issue with idolatry is that the worship is wrong. You're going after the wrong God you love the wrong thing, which then makes your identity misconstrued. You're identified by the wrong God. Your loves are off. And the result of that, your service will be misdirected. The one rule to serve God will be taken off course and they won't be able to do it. So the terrifying reality is that these people are good Christians. You know, they show up at church every Sunday. They're sitting in the pews. They're people like us. They're at the worship service. They're saying, God, we want to do God's stuff. We want to serve you. We want to obey you as best we can. And they don't really see the problem. As John Calvin says, their hearts are idol factories, pumping out new idols day by day. And that's the limiting factor of their worship and their service. The scary thing is, is their idols often coexist with our Christian life and we're super comfortable with it. They're respectable sins. They're things that we can walk into church and not think twice about. They don't bother us. They don't hinder our lives. They don't make it difficult. It's not like a blatant public addiction that puts you in jail. It's things that no one talks about at church that will eventually grip your heart and drive you away from the worship of the true God. 
These are good church people who maybe like us, they worship financial security. And so when the tithe basket comes around or it's that time of the month to give your check, it's hard because you think, man, it would be nice to have a vacation. It'd be nice to have a new car. It'd be nice if my 401k was a little bigger. Maybe I'll hold off a few dollars and not give as much as I could. Or maybe it's good church people nursing an alcohol addiction. Work's been hard. You want a little escape. Reality is you know it's not as easy as you want it to be, and you want control of the pleasure. So day by day, it's one drink, it's two drinks, it's three drinks. It's eventually becoming an addiction that you can't control. It's good church people quietly feeding a pornography addiction because they don't have control over their lives, and so they want to get it at some place. They don't get affirmed in their day-to-day reality, and so they run to the first place that it will give, give them affirmation. And they do it quietly and secretly. It's good church people who are comfortable missing the occasional Sunday for work or for vacation, thinking, if I just got ahead at work, then I'd be able to focus on following Christ a little bit better. But right now I'm too distracted. Or if I could just get a vacation, then I could rest. But all the while, the real reality is they're worshiping rest when, in they, when they ought to be resting in worship of the true God. They've misconstrued their loves. Their idolatry has misplaced God in their life. It's so easy. Or it might be good church people who have crumbling families, but they love looking like they have everything together. They love the image of people looking at them thinking that's the ideal family. And so they never go to get help from the pastor or counselor because they're worshiping the wrong God and it's deadly. So the issue is though they're secretly and casually, the Israelites were worshiping false gods and this led to the realization of a wrong identity. And it's going to lead eventually to the failure to serve God in the right way. So sometimes we see our predicament. We promise God, never again. Tomorrow, it's over. We'll try harder next time. I'll resolve more to do it. But the reality is, is our unfulfilled promises result in our greater punishment. Our unfulfilled promises result in our greatest, greater punishment. And so we must look to a better promise. We must find a greater promise to cling to. What I mean by this is the Israelites have been making promises they can't fulfill. They say, we are witnesses against ourselves. If we don't do it, bring the consequences on us, but they can't obey. Joshua's already pointed that out. Three times they say that they're witnesses against themselves, increasing the intensity of the consequence that's going to come on them. We know that failing to deliver on a promise makes the consequences even greater. If you remember being a kid or if you are a kid now, you remember your dad saying before work, tonight, we're going to go fishing. Tonight, we're going to play catch in the yard. But he gets home from work and the toilet upstairs leaking. The bill's been piling up. Work's getting stressful, so he needs to go to bed a little earlier so he can get there a little earlier. He says, not today. And it's crushing when, you know, when dad does that. And we know the more we promise, the greater the consequences are when we don't fulfill the promise. And that's what Israel's been doing here. They've done it three times against themselves. Maybe another way to think about it is like kids on the playground. You know, they're playing kickball and they, one kid thinks it's foul. The other kid thinks it's fair. And they go up and they're having an argument. And the first thing he says, I promise it was in. And the kid looks back and says, I don't believe you. And he says, I swear on my mother's life. You know, that's like the movie thing, right? So he's up the consequences. And the kid says, I still don't believe you. And he utters the words, I swear to God that that ball was in. What Josh was doing here is they're sitting there looking at God saying, I swear to you, God, if I don't fulfill this, let the consequences come on me. 
and the punishment will be much greater for their failure to fulfill their promise. And it's a really big deal. Joshua sets up a stone to act as a physical reminder to look back at it and say, if you obey, the blessings come on you. But if you fail to do this, this will be a physical reminder when you promise to God that you were going to obey his rules on your life. And it's a bad deal. It's really intense. And we don't know what to do because we resonate with those people. It's Sunday morning. And we're like the man in Mark 9. His son needs to be healed by Jesus. And Jesus says, well, have faith. And the man cries out, I believe. But then we, like him, Monday morning comes around and we cry out sorrowfully, help my unbelief. We're mixed. We have mixed emotions, mixed loves. We're like Peter who promises he'll never deny Jesus under any circumstances, even if he dies. And yet, when Monday morning comes around, the God of safety beckons us. As we go to share our faith with the guy in the cubicle next to us, and their neighbor down the street, and we cower in fear, and the God of security threatens to undo us. And we, like Peter, hear the rooster crow for the third time. And it's so indicting on our lives because we are mixed bags. And the thing with Peter, just to note, you recognize the whole worship identity service going on because when he's confronted by the servant girl in the courtyard, he says, aren't you one of his? Are you one of Jesus' disciples? He said, I've never known the guy. I've never associated with him. I don't know what you're talking about. You see that Peter loved security. He loved affirmation. He wanted belonging. He wanted safety. And so those gods beckoned him to deny his identity that was found originally in Jesus Christ. And he is really sorrowful over it because it's such a big deal. So how do we escape? If our promises and personal resolve only incur more judgment, what do we do? Well, we need to look to a better promise. Just flip to Genesis 15 with me for a moment. I'll give you a second to turn there because I want to look at another covenant scenario that changes the situation. We're going to just read a few verses here, verses 17 and 18 in Genesis 15. So Genesis says this, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which represent God, passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. What we see here is the typical covenant making situation in their culture. So if you can imagine it, when parties would get together, they would strike a deal. They've got to have a way to symbolize it. So what do they do? They cut an animal, put the pieces on the ground. And both parties typically would walk through the animal, symbolizing what? Symbolizing, if I don't come through on my end of the deal, let it be done to me like it's done to these animals. But the odd thing about this text in Genesis 15 is that only one person walks through the animal pieces. It's not Abram. Abram's asleep on the ground, just kind of you know, half-consciously looking at what's happening, the only person that walks those animal pieces is God himself. So when God is a witness against himself, it's not for his sins. It's for the sin of Abraham and his offspring. He's saying, if you, Abraham, don't come through on your end of the deal, let it be done to me like it's done to these pieces of animal on the ground. And the good news for us is that that's Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God. He's the manifestation of this present, of this promise that 
for covenant breakers, for those who can't keep the rules of the contract, Jesus Christ, like those animals, was slain. He was crucified, dead, and was buried for you, for me, for people who are able to keep the contract, who are able to keep up their end of the deal, and it's good news. When we witness against ourselves, it's to our greater condemnation. When God witnesses against himself, it's for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. So what we've seen today is that worship is at the center of our lives. Worship forms our identity. Identity will fuel service. But idolatry will short-circuit the whole process. It messes everything up. But there's an antithesis that we've seen between Christ and idols. You see, idols are dead. They're impotent. They promise things they can never deliver. They don't care about you. They don't love you. They don't act in the way that you want them to act. They have no feelings towards you. But Jesus Christ reorients our worship to the living and true God, the God that is utterly transcendent and holy, yet so personally he became a man in Jesus Christ to die for the sins of his people. That's the God that Jesus Christ reorients us to. He renews our worship. See, idols, when they promise identity, it's different than the identity that we earn or that we are given through Christ. Idols say something like this. You have the idol of success. It says, if you are successful, you will be known as a success. And it says, work, 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 earn, earn, earn until the day you fail. And then what does it say? It says, failure, not enough, not good enough. It says, sacrifice everything you have to me. And even when you feel like you get it, it was never enough to begin with. The identity that it promises is will never fulfill and you'll never be able to earn it. It'll ask everything from you and never give anything back to you. But Jesus Christ gives us a new identity, one that's given, not one that's earned. It says something like this, because of Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross, you can be called a son of God. You can be called a daughter of God, not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. It's a finished work, not one that goes up and down. It doesn't beckon you to earn it every day. It says you are this. Your identity is renewed. It's reoriented. And lastly, it renews our service from conformity to the idol to the conformity to the living and true God. You see, the idol of pleasure beckons you to earn pleasure, to get pleasure. And so when something difficult comes up, you can't do it. You can't go help my friend move. It's too hard. You can't stop to give food to the homeless guy on the side of the road. It's too difficult. When the idol of success comes, you don't want to associate with people who are unsuccessful. It beckons you away from those things. Your service is directed in conformity to your idol. If you love money, you'll never be able to give it away. It beckons you to conform to it. But Jesus Christ reorients us to living a true God, and our service will reflect him. You see, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died. He gave everything, his life, to gain a people for himself. And so when we worship the living and true God through Jesus Christ, we're empowered by the Spirit to live a life of cruciformity like Jesus Christ. We can go die to ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him, even when it's really hard, even when we lose our money, even when we don't like the people we're going to help, even when it costs early mornings and late nights. As we look at the one who we're being conformed to the image of, we see that he's giving everything to us and it allows us to be able to be conformed into his image. 
So the only way to sincerely serve the Lord is to have your idolatry punished by the Lord and being grafted into Jesus Christ is the path to true worship, a secure identity, and joyful service. The problem with the Israelites was they didn't really repent. They saw the idols, but they didn't want to get rid of them. They didn't think it was that big of a deal. So we must repent of our idols. We must abolish them and throw them away and destroy them, the things that grab our heart. We must claim to Jesus, cling to Jesus Christ, the true God, the living God, who for covenant breakers allows them to forsake idols. By putting their faith in him, he renews our worship, he reorients our identity, and he fuels our service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've been gracious to us. We thank you of your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you that although we were covenant breakers, breaking the covenant of works under your just wrath and curse, Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf. God, let us not deal with the consequences of forsaking Jesus Christ. Let us not be identified by anyone but him, the true son of God. God, and let our identities that are found in Christ motivate us and empower us to a life of service to you. God, I pray that we would obey God by our renewed identities and by our reoriented worship. We pray this all in Christ's name.